Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our October episode of the AMR Studio. Today, we are having a bit of an in-house episode. We are featuring an interview that Jenny did with Dr. Olof Lindahl on 14th of September. And Olof is one of the associate senior lecturers that we are supporting here at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. He is scheduled to give a seminar for the UAC on October the 2nd, Friday. And we are really happy to have these two things together back to back. We hope you enjoy. So today we have uh, Dr. Olof Lindahl with us. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and uh, where you are now? Thank you, Jennifer. Yes, so I'm uh, I'm in Uppsala right now. Uh, My name is Olof Lindahl. I'm the uh, Associate Senior Lecturer uh, sponsored by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center uh, in the Humanities and Social Sciences, which sounds like a big thing. I'm, I'm actually only competent in a very small area of the social sciences and the level of competence could probably be argued as well. (laughs) <laughs> uh, specifically, what I do is I look at the economics and the, the business of side of AMR, uh, the company side of AMR, and I do so from the Department of Business Studies, which is where I, I work, well, where I'm formally assigned uh, inside mm-hmm. the university. I wouldn't say that's a very small part. I mean, everybody has their own little own little special thing that yes, they're really yes, good yes. at, and then we have all these other big titles that sound much bigger than they are. <laughs> I just meant that I'm I'm uh, I'm the guy from the humanities and social sciences, and I uh, of course I haven't even met people from most parts of those uh, of that scientific area, so it's a bit yeah. uh, daunting, but a lot of fun as well. Uh, so you've relatively recently joined the UAC. Has it gone well so far? Do you feel? Yes, it has. I mean, it, uh, we'll see how much of it, how much damage COVID <laughs> situation will, will wreak, but. But it yeah. has gone well, and it's been a lot of fun so far. And I got the feeling it's going to be even more fun moving forward. Well, would you mind telling us a little bit of how you ended up in AMR? So you have a, a business background uh, in uh, business economics, I believe is yes. the phrase in English. So how did you end up working with the AMR business models specifically? Well, it was a, a kind of banana peel situation where I was finishing my PhD, and one of my colleagues was joining the Drive AB project. Mm-hmm. It was a big IMI-funded uh, project where you want to look at ways to incentivize uh, R&D in antibiotics. And uh, they had a very multidisciplinary approach. They opened the door basically to, to people from law, from uh, business and economics, people from political science, ethicists, which is becoming more common now. But which I think it was having that type of approach was a bit new back in 2014. Uh, when this started. Yeah, it, was a and, very, uh, it was a very novel concept when that Dry Baby started from then that it was this interdisciplinary and a lot of focus on what's outside of the natural sciences part of it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it was uh, pretty novel for me as well, because <laughs> I had had zero background, but a lot of enthusiasm going into it. So um, I got to work on that part time mm-hmm. as part of my, my postdoctoral research. And uh, uh, of course, it's, it's very uh, exciting and, and uh, meaningful and you meet a lot of interesting people. So I kind of just got sucked further and further uh, down that rabbit hole ever since. Got trapped by the AMR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think it's uh, especially if you have that, that bone in your body where you, you kind of want to do something that has a more tangible impact on society and we can all relate to health. Of course, it's very difficult to have a tangible impact on AMR 
but you yeah, can but try and that's it's, more it feels like it's part of that like i want to it's, this sounds so cheesy but i want to do some good <laughs> i want i want to improve something i want to change something that matters but that also tends to be the really hard problems that are you're solving you know one millimeter at a time improving something i think we are contributing just you know taking part and making some noise around yeah. the, the mr problem i think is better than nothing right and then mm -hmm. uh, of course hopefully some of our research output will be useful to different degrees mm. for sure but uh, i think especially research towards your field i mean i come from a natural sciences background personally with amr i mean everybody's accepted that this is a problem it's not that unusual to work with it either but there's it from my personal sense at least there seems to be a lot less research coming from the the humanities the social sciences it, it's improving we've had the great opportunity to interview people from social sciences and now we're getting the chance to interview you about the business side of things but it feels like it's been a slower start there. So just doing some research there is really opening up people's eyes in those fields to the changes that can happen, what we need to work on in this field for this problem, in my opinion. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it's still quite early, at least in my, I think in Uppsala and business studies, and we have colleagues in engineering and, and law and etc. cetera. Uh, but I think broadly speaking, it's still quite early. And I know that, that me and my colleagues, we've been in this since 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it, you know, first you have to get into the AMR side of things. And then you have yeah. to start understanding the challenges and the kind of the context, the wider context to, to be able to be effective uh, inside uh, that, those discussions. But then we, we live in, in, in uh, the world of academia. So you also need to publish in your, your home domain. Otherwise, yeah. uh, bad things start happening and uh, and that, then you have to kind of make okay so what does this business problem of, of you know lack of uh, attractive markets in, in antibiotics what does that mean in business studies literature for yeah. example have you found that to be a hard sell for people in your in your as you say home domain have you found it to be kind of a hard sell to work with this problem or do other people find it interesting okay so it's, it's an easy sell mm -hmm. people do find it interesting so that's a one side. On the other hand, you have these traditional silos or these canons in the field where there are these literature streams or phenomena been studied for maybe 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are certain ideas of what, how do you do this? Why do you do it? What qualifies as, as an interesting question in the stream of literature? So you kind of have to navigate that as well. People are yeah. interested, but once you send it to a top-ranked journal, you might get very weird questions back. It doesn't really fit the mold, I well, guess. It's a bit unusual. I mean, we normally don't deal with uh, these kind of global health threats yeah. type of research in, in business studies. Of course, it's a, it's a field that, that traditionally came out of, uh, you know, automotive and heavy industry type of studies mm -hmm. uh, and then evolved into organizational studies that could, uh, you know, any organization, profit-driven or not. But uh, this type of more focused phenomena kind of global threat type of phenomena has starting to happen in the literature the literature is a bit confused and the <laughs> authors are a bit confused uh, yeah. as to exactly how to position things however you, as you alluded to the general interest has helped that's good because then people cut you some slack if you, even if you have uh, un unorthodox research questions which is uh, very helpful but so so it's been uh, <laughs> for us if, if i can speak or at least for myself going into AMR has been first understanding that world, getting into AMR, and then getting back somehow <laughs> with your <laughs> findings, like right? And trying re to reposition again. 
yeah yeah so it's kind yeah. of been an oscillation back and forth and it's a bit uh, challenging but it's a lot of fun as well because of course what you're doing is pretty fresh mm-hmm. so it's, it's i would say it's more work but it's also more rewarding oh that's a nice way to see it uh, i wonder if you think the the current situation in the world with the global pandemic the covid pandemic and everything that there might be a new approach to health issues to these global health problems and how they affect businesses i mean it's a bit different of course but do you think maybe the current situation will kind of open up for new thinking with certain research questions? Well, I think it probably lends more credibility to some of the, the central problems with AMR that, that you know, it, it is a threat, it's increasing, mm-hmm. and there are these structural problems uh, where, where we don't have a lot of new antibiotics, but we yeah. do know that we have resistance development. And I think with the pandemic fresh in mind, I, I hope that policymakers can also envision that, okay, so this could actually hit the fan. Mm-hmm. It's not just a alien invaders type of, you know, asteroid hit kind of uh, prognosis or, or forecast. It's yeah. actually something that is, that is very real. It's more slow moving, but it's much heavier also. I mean, the result of the AMR, the, the worst case scenario with the AMR issue would be very, very, very severe. I mean, I think we said before it was like a a slow but incredibly severe flood compared to a tsunami. Like it, they both have really serious effects, but one scares you more than the other in the immediate short term. Yeah, so (laughs) I I hope this this will help the the conversation around AMR now that that people realize that that Mm. these type of things or or similar type of of health catastrophes can happen. Yeah. And uh, it's about structural preparedness on a societal uh, partly global level where you actually need to have in our case the diagnostics available and the antibiotics yeah absolutely uh would you mind telling us a little bit more about current projects that you're working on and how they're going right so i have two streams of research uh, one is basically we, we we can call it new economic models for antibiotic r&d which is mm-hmm. really uh, centered around what are the problems afflicting companies that try to develop new uh, drugs and how could those challenges be overcome using uh, various monetary means. We're ma- mostly focused on the lack of profitability in antibiotics and how it affects the behavior of firms. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, essentially uh, looking at the number of new uh, molecules that wouldn't move forward in the pipeline given the current market situation where, where you have severe difficulty in getting uh, essentially paid for your antibiotics once developed, mm-hmm. how that affects the development, you know, from, from phase one and forward, maybe preclinical, and then looking at different ways that you could correct this. By correct, I mean make these projects actually move forward because we have to remember that in, in the very most cases, this is a, is a business decision in the sense that it's a company where people work for a salary and they want the company to survive and they have owners who want the company to survive. So they have to make business decisions that will enable the, the company to survive, be it a small or medium-sized pharma company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can expect them to only basically go ahead with new projects if they are, you know, have some kind of shot at actually being profitable. Antibiotics in general aren't really profitable in today's market, are they? No. Are the recent examples have turned out not to make money after they come to market, even if they make it to market, right? Like a, like a Cajun, for example, which, which went bankrupt. We've talked about a Cajun before on the podcast, and yeah. that's a pretty good example of how, how wrong things can go. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, it's not an uncommon example. 
But basically, what you can say is that most uh, companies face a market similar to the one by Acadian. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge problem because if, if you don't have out of a hundred molecules, if they if if not a fairly high percentage have some kind of chance to make money if they are if they get through all the technical difficulties of of, mm-hmm. of getting a an actual product to the market, then companies won't go that way because it becomes some kind of a suicide mission uh, as far as your job is concerned, yeah. and, and that is a bit much to expect from people. So generally speaking, what's going to happen is that these molecules are going to end up in the freezer at best. And that's highly problematic because you need a lot of molecules to move forward in the, in the, in the pipeline, uh, as you say, yeah. uh, for some to get out on the other side. So that, there can't be a lot of uncertainty when it comes to profitability. Or actually, the certainty is there, but the certainty is on the you're going to lose money side. Yeah, let's say there's no examples recently of, of the other case, right? I mean, it's... The new no, antibiotics that have come out, they haven't made money. I mean, I, from what I understand, there's no other examples where that's not the case. And I, and I think in the in the real world, so to speak, I mean, if, if but where people try to make rational decisions and people are held accountable for those decisions in these small pharma companies, you cannot, you cannot you know, throw all, all your money at something where everybody else who did that went out of business. Yeah. Even if they want to, which I think they do, that's why they're in development in the first place uh, of antibiotics, but they come up against this harsh reality. And that's highly problematic. So what we've been looking at is how you can use different so-called incentives to try to bridge this lack of profitability or to, for example, in the case of a so-called market entry reward, that was quite a lot discussed also in the Drive AB project, Mm -hmm. where you essentially have an innovation price at the far end of the development. So if you get a new drug to market that would target a certain pathogen and this drug has certain characteristics, you could be rewarded at the tone of, you know, one to uh, one and a half billion dollars. So basically not associated with sales, but associated with just bringing a new drug to market. So kind of compensating for some of the, the costs, correct? Exactly. I mean, it's been debated the extent to which you can uh, de-link from sales. Mm-hmm. And that is a good idea that has not been accepted by all parties. No. So, so there are these, these hybrid forms floating around. But yes, that is the main idea. And mm-hmm. of course, the problem of profitability is partly that it takes so long to develop the drug that all the money you threw at development early on, you can think of it as a, as a bank loan where you take a loan and then you don't make any money for the first you know, 10 years. And then you get to the market and you don't really have any sales worth mentioning for a couple of years. And the interest grows pretty big before you start getting your uh, income. Yeah. And, and in the end, it's just a bit too slow. So the idea with the MER was to have a, a large chunk of money for whoever got there first to incentivize companies to take the risk. And uh, the idea was that that would entice different kinds of private capital to get on board to say that this, this is actually a worthwhile investment. Mm-hmm. We could actually make money out of this and do some good in the process. It's a way of thinking of how can you use different types of incentives, in this case, the market entry reward, I use it as an example, to fix the profitability issue in drug development. Mm. Uh, that's where one of my two project streams is situated. Mm-hmm. And the other? The other is about the diagnostics. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you have companies developing uh, drugs, we talked about them, and then you have uh, companies developing diagnostic tools. And these two markets, if you will, have some similar problems. And I think one thing that is similar to both of them is, on the one hand, there's a connection, right? Because you're, yeah. You're, yeah. But there's also this uncertainty, and there's a, also a very slow product uptake. So you have a lot, for example, diagnostic tools coming to market, but basically not being uh, used. 
Yeah, from from what I've heard, I've, I've heard a few um, medical practitioners talking about diagnostic tools, and this is very anecdotal, but they basically say breaking a di diagnostic tool into a hospital depends on who in that hospital is working with taking in new things, how old are they, how ingrained in their ways are they, these sorts of things that might not have anything to do with how good the product is, how specialized it is, how successful it is. Without knowing anything about this, it feels like a very hard market to work in if it's kind of these old structures, it's hard to make improvements, even if the science is there, even if it's a really good product. Yeah, I, I think that there are two main culprits, if you will. On the one hand, you have the, the reimbursement side under the mm -hmm. regulations, uh, which might uh, throw up problems for companies, especially if, since you need to get international sales going. You can't just yeah. sell it in Sweden, for example. But then also, as you said, you have this whole change dimension, which is um, and this is an example, I guess, of how you can abridge uh, business studies and AMR because change management has been a, a popular topic for a long time mm -hmm. because companies always try to change to stay with the times, to uh, beat the competition, etc. And it's very hard because people don't want to change, at least yeah. not uh, people in groups have a tendency <laughs> of not wanting to change. And so see a lot of this in the hospitals, of course. Um, but I think I, I would assume you also have some of it back in the companies that are developing it so they might be wed to an idea of what their product should be like and they're not super enthusiastic of taking on board new feedback on what's wrong with it or um, uh, so i mean it's customer. it's not the product itself is not really actually um in tune with what the what's needed in a hospital setting what's needed for for the actual diagnostics well it's kind of a fact of life for good product developers to focus a lot on the product and then uh, you can end up with what we call a, like a technology push push situation where you have you develop something brilliant and then you try to shove it onto the market and then you, you're often frustrated with people who don't realize the genius of your product while another way of looking at it is this kind of market pull perspective where you ask the customers much more uh, granularly uh, what they are actually what they need and what they would mm -hmm. use if they you know uh, what they would buy if they could for this and that price tag yeah. So, so kind of a customer focus instead of a producer focus. I guess in AMR, it's quite a mix or in, in diagnostics, excuse me. It's quite, you need quite a mix of these two things. You kind of need the, I mean, the technology to kind of show, okay, what can we do? What's possible? Because that might not be mm. what somebody in the hospital is really thinking about, but it does really need to be focused on who's actually going to use it, who's going to pay for it. And is it worth it? Is it, does it fit in their streamline, their pipeline of how they do things? Yeah, and, and of course, uh, there are all these things that, that kind of play a part in this, you know, technology push or market pull situation. But, yeah. but then, of course, you'll have people who are, uh, you know, who just don't want to change or you could even have, you know, internal conflict in a hospital or clinic that holds back the introduction of new technologies and tools. Not because it's not clinically relevant, but more like you were alluding to that you might have certain people who are not who don't look kindly at new gizmos and yeah. who have been around and who know for a Maybe fact, just don't trust them. We I don't mean, need this yeah. it's always been done this other way. And, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but it does hold back uh, the implementation of new tools. Yeah, the way this uh, person who was I was talking to about this, she explained it as a, um, a hesitance because it tends to be a black box situation. You tend not to really know how some of the diagnostics work. And then these people often don't trust it. They, go, they want to like understand, they want it to be quite manual. And then she mm -hmm. was saying that this type of people tend to be very hesitant with new technology because they maybe don't understand how it works or it's not 
very public information about exactly how everything works. They said this was a bit of a hindrance. So that was kind of their explanation of, I mean, I said it as like, people are old and don't want to change, but that's not really what I meant. It's more of a, it can be a bit of a little, if you don't understand it, you don't trust it. And in hospital settings, people yes. are very hesitant to use things they don't trust. No, and, and that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, you probably shouldn't be using a whole lot of things that you don't know how it works either. Yeah. But but, uh, but well, it, I don't it, know how the internet both. works. And <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, me neither. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a good example, though. But uh, no, but but this is this is an example of how what what seems simple isn't simple once you get into these kind of organizational realities where people or groups in the developing firm think and behave a certain way which might constitute a problem and then you have mm -hmm. people and groups in the receiving end the clinic or the hospital who also behave in ways that are not uh, productive when it comes to implementing new tools yeah. so and, and what the problem here is is that at least from a business standpoint because of course i have a bias of looking at things from from the the, the business side rather than from the clinical side is that it creates a lot of uncertainty because you realize that if you have to develop something be it a drug or a technology and you also have to take into account that oh yeah and then we have the fact that you know four out of five of our competitors who came to market earlier uh, with other products uh, they haven't gotten their sales going yeah then in practice and, and this is what this is the kind of the financial side of things that basically what happens is that the owners of the company or whoever is responsible for deciding on what you develop what kind of product you're developing they need to see that the sales of i mean if it's uncertain whether you're going to have sales then the price needs to be really high or the yeah. the, the the small chance of selling it has to be hugely lucrative otherwise you're just setting yourself up to fail miserably mm. There is this vicious feedback loop which exists in both drugs and in diagnostics where every failure in the market adds to the hesitance of mm -hmm. the, the remaining, the surviving uh, developers moving forward. So basically, I guess you could say that, that um, the uncertainty increases, the, the demand for profitability actually goes up because if, if it's that unlikely to be a success, then the small chance of success has to be hugely lucrative. And that is not helping anybody. And that would probably create more hesitance in the hospitals and clinics of getting this new gizmo on board. And yeah, so you can see there's a bit of a, uh, not a catch-22, but it's a, it's a bad kind of feedback situation. So we've, we've touched a little bit upon how your research has kind of been, um, how it is when you publish things, when you approach journals with these sorts of topics, that it can be a little bit difficult, but, but there's interest there. I mean, there's... Uh, maybe a little bit more understanding for a little bit of a weird yeah, it's, it's a little bit like coming i mean you're presenting people with a dessert they never mm -hmm. had yeah so it's kind of like a bit of hesitance but they're all also quite excited yeah that that is uh, the feeling uh, as expressed in a in a course <laughs> but if you go from the other side how does your um, perspective coincide with other people working in amr do you feel like it that you can mesh well with people working in amr or is there a lot of difficulty explaining I mean, I think maybe a lot of people in natural sciences just kind of say, oh, we just need to change this. It needs like there needs to be a huge change in how these companies work. Do you see maybe a bit of naivety there or? Well, I wouldn't call it naivety, but but I, I do realize that, especially now that I start thinking about it in those terms, that <laughs> that uh, I mainly work with other business economists, even though yeah. I've been in this multidisciplinary field for a while. And But it also has to to do with uh, our kind of specialized profession that you have to 
I mean, we can work together, but you have to still have to understand what I'm saying, and I still have to understand what you're saying, etc. Yeah. Um, and of course, when we're talking about um, like new economic models for R and D and antibiotics, then there's a fair lot of fair amount of business and, and, and economics thinking. Yeah, absolutely. It. I mean, you end up more being a say a representative for the the concept of AMR in that field. Yes, I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, I'm much more able to work with people from from medicine or, or, or different parts of the medical technology, for example, than would any you know random guy or girl from from business studies but mm. uh, i still look forward to to being becoming even better at working and also working truly multidisciplinary that comes up against the publish and per or perish kind of academic system as well i think yeah. uh, at least for younger scholars that that becomes a bit of a, a headache that you need to stay afloat just like the, these small companies have been talking about you need to have some kind of formal level of success as well yeah, something so that you can put on paper, you can show these numbers and these these results. Yeah, I mean, I mean also to give you a, just a small slice of what, what I'm thinking about is that if I apply for the next level, which in my mm -hmm. case would be associate professor, can, I can show them everything I publish, but maybe uh, half or less is going to count. Uh -huh. Because, uh, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, but you are still uh, asking to be associate professor of, in my case, international business, which is my home domain then. Mm -hmm. So in that home domain, only some of the things I produce will actually be valuable. We're incentivized to become experts at really, really narrow things. And there isn't really the same incentive to improve collaboration between fields. I mean, there, there are a few pushes that if it looks good if you work together with different groups and working things like that. But these inherent, like the ladder climbing improvements in academia are based on your successes in your narrow field because you, you're proving yourself as an expert in that specific field not yeah. necessarily the other fields that you're working with yes but I, I think what the Uppsala Antibiotics Center has done with these associate senior lectureships me being one uh, mm -hmm. that, that also has I mean getting that position has really shielded me from a lot of the, the bitter winds that would otherwise discourage me a lot from doing multidisciplinary work well that's I mean, good to hear <laughs> so, so I think it's an important initiative as such and I think also, of course, the research funding that goes towards multidisciplinary projects, which is very common in, in AMR, like the JPI AMR uh, mm -hmm. money, and of course, a lot of money from all kinds of Swedish funders, and as well as from inside the university, I think is hugely helpful for that effort, because since the kind of the uh, our journal system is still quite uh, intra-silo, mm -hmm. uh, then the, at least the, the funding, uh, these opportunities need to be uh, bridging silos and, and kind of be multidisciplinary. So we're kind of touching on a question that we like to ask the people that we interview, which is, um, or what do you think is missing? And we're, we usually say specifically in AMR research, what do you think is missing in AMR research? And if you have any wish lists, but I kind of get the sense that you have a wish list for maybe a bit more flexibility in the academia, a little bit more understanding, or um, is there anything else that, or anything more? Am I misunderstanding yeah. you? Well, that is, of course, uh, one side. I don't have any solutions, though, because, of course, this is also about the integrity of the system, the university yeah. system as a whole. And it has its purpose. It's just unfortunate that it doesn't work that well I for mean, everybody. We'll have, to we'll have to figure out how to make that work uh, yeah. over time. But uh, so what I think is missing, um, I think I I'd like to see more debate 
I think, mm -hmm. you know, what should be done. Spend a lot of time, for example, developing these ideas around, around the market and rewards. And now we have a couple of pilots going on, but some are more uh, an actual more market entry rewards than others but I, mm -hmm. I, I i think it's considering the sums we're talking about billions of dollars it would be interesting to have a more lively debate around you know what should be done and why and how do we know because yeah. i think so far a lot of the research on these uh, policy incentives have been research so so you know uh, part empirical part desk work but what i would like to see more is probably experimentation and this kind of idea that you know we don't really know exactly how to do it because it's hugely complicated yeah it feels like a hard sell for the government the side, governmental side of things policy side of things uh, to be a bit more experimentational it's it instinctively doesn't feel like their thing but i understand i mean you kind of wish it was it would be a good way to to see what actually works what's the best i think so because you can't counter up these effects in a lab i mean we're no. talking about hugely People are headache, right? Behavior-wise, <laughs> but then you have people in groups, and then you have, have uh, groups in groups, and you have the whole industry. So, mm -hmm. so kind of figuring out how something should be done without actually uh, testing and trying, I think, is unlikely to work. The thing is, the real world is there. So, not experimenting is a, is the weird thing. Yeah, it's like you're you're trying to figure out what food your cat likes but you're not going to try and feed it different things. You're going to sit there with pen and paper and, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just saying that you, you would like to see more experimentation and we are seeing some experimentation. We have, uh, as I said, the Enable initiative here in Uppsala, we had the, we have the, something called, it's referred to sometimes as the Swedish MUR, but it's a, it's a, a new way of, of reimbursing antibiotics that is piloted by the Swedish public health agency. I've heard of something that the, some people We've used the description because we've heard it from somebody else that it's kind of like a Netflix subscription situation more than a, that you're kind of paying for access to an antibiotic without actually when you need it, not saying we're going to buy this much, but we're paying for access when we need it. Is that yeah, so you, what you mean? As I understand it, you're, you're, you're paying to keep it uh, how you say, available, yeah, <laughs> yeah. available in, in the country because they might delist it otherwise or deregister it or st stop mm -hmm. selling it because it's not. It's not worth the headache. No. Top of mind, I think that the, the UK incentives and then US examples or initiatives such as uh, Carbex, mm -hmm. which I know you covered on, on one of your yeah, we've episodes had a, the AMR studio. We've had Kevin Utterson here, luckily. Yes. I think that that is also a great example because, of course, it's not so much exper experiment, but it is, a, it is an incentive going live. Yeah. At the tune of uh, 500 uh, million and then some. Uh, mm -hmm. Not only does it, you know, collect data and tell us something about how it actually works, mm -hmm. uh, but it also gives, I think, governments some confidence in, in these kind of uh, uh, incentives. Absolutely. It's uh, probably at least as hard to convince a government to do something as a company if there's no example of a success story or example of how it's worked. No, and I think my experience is partly there's, there's a, there's a certain fear of growing up, I think, from the governmental agencies that, you know, what, what if we spend all this money and, and nothing comes out of it? Which, of course, is a very sound way of thinking for, yeah. for any kind of government agency. At the same time, statistically, it will occasionally happen that you spend money and nothing happens. Uh, do you have anything else on your wish list? Uh, let's see. I do. Again, from my own perspective, of course, I see that there's a lot of space for the social sciences in the fight against AMR to... Mm -hmm 
to look at behavioral issues because there are so many so far have been under research from a lot of, I mean, absolutely probably not even research from some fields. We're talking about, you know, prescribing, stewardship, infection control, investments in R&D. All these things are, are behavioral issues. Yeah. Uh, some of them you can you run a little, uh, some number crunching on like investments decisions, but mainly the, uh, it's still very much about uh, attitudes and mm-hmm. greed and fear and what people think is the responsible thing to do. And Yeah, absolutely. I always get surprised coming into these topics and understanding more about them because you kind of just assume that it works a certain way. And then when you're actually looking at how it is and how people actually experience things, how people behave, then it's, for me, tends to be a surprise. No, exactly. And I think understanding the forces at work is very important when trying to understand why people behave certain ways. Um, Yeah. I think one thing that is on my wish list is something that we're planning for the Uppsala Health Summit for 2021. It's about looking at uh, why so much of the policy work that's been done on especially incentivizing the development of new antibiotics has not actually become policy, uh, why only some ideas have been piloted or tested. Yeah, that sounds so, super interesting. I think it will, and I, I'm sure I'm going to learn something mind-blowing. So we, we will see what, what happens. So we're going to have people from industry, academia, policymakers, civil society, and, and see what we can come up with. Uh, I think we should probably wrap up soon, but I wanted to, a few last things. We like asking people what is often considered to be misunderstood about their field. And we often mean that in the sense of uh, either are other people in the AMR field misunderstanding about your field or general public, if you come to somebody and say, I work in this, if they misunderstand what you're working with, uh, do you feel like your field is misunderstood in some way? Uh, I mean, of course, businesses are, are about uh, mainly about profitability, or mm-hmm. rather, I mean, profitability is a necessary condition for doing business. So you, you cannot not be profitable for very long. It's like yeah. it's a little bit like eating and breathing and sleeping. <laughs> it, it's, it's unsustainable not to. So even though uh, businesses do a lot of very exciting things, from you know electric cars to iPhones to new drugs, it's still looked at uh, with a bit of uh, hesitation, I think, especially. Mm-hmm in parts of the AMR, where you focus more on the importance of drugs and the, the, the priceless characteristics of drugs in saving lives and curing disease. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the reality doesn't sit very well with the, the business part of it, mm-hmm. that by and large, as humans, we have organized pharmaceutical development as private enterprise. Yeah. Uh, and that comes with certain rules that are very difficult to get around, probably impossible to get around. But it still sits very uh, uncomfortably that people should be making money on saving lives, for example, which is the whole, the kind of whole cold truth. Uh, yeah, it, doctors it is do true. That as well, but. Yeah, do you think people tend to kind of see it as a, a kind of cynical perspective or something like that, that it's, people want to think about, like you said, the life-saving, the, all the good that things do, but they maybe. It's not about the cynical side of, thing or cynical perspective this is a good half or more of what we're talking about oh yeah absolutely so so kind of ignoring it and pretending we're going to get new life-saving drugs for nothing which Mm -hmm. is the whole problem in this industry uh, i don't think that's helpful but i understand completely why people don't think of you know the the business side of things as, as important living in the world we live in i mean you have to look at what's in front of you I have observed that the, the hesitance to work with industry and small firms and stuff uh, also affects, you know, projects and roundtables and initiatives where you're supposed to sit down 
from you know academia ngos industry government absolutely so i can see that quite clearly and if i'm not in business studies because i think everything should be for profit and etc cetera, etc cetera. That, that's not no. about but you do see these tensions uh, mm-hmm. between different actors and i think they are natural and they should be there but they should also be managed in a good way because yeah. we need to move forward um, I just wanted to give you a chance to add anything at the end of the interview, if there's something you want to add, if there's anything coming up that you're working on. I have one thing to add that I'm working on right now mm-hmm. that I, I was saving, and then uh, one uh, tip yeah. for the listeners. So I think one thing that I'm working on right now, together with a colleague, uh, Aidan Hollis in uh, University of Calgary and Chantal Morel in the University of Geneva, We've actually had Chantal Morel on the podcast before. Yes, you did. <laughs> you should get Aiden on as well. He, he's a okay. great guy. We'll, keep, we'll put him on the list. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> and, and that is, is something we call an antibiotic susceptibility bonus, which is essentially starting out from the uh, realization that there is very little incentives for firms to mm-hmm. actually work towards stewardship. Because as we've been talking about pretty much all this entire session, there is a complete lack of profitability in uh, antibiotic development. Working with stewardship means even less sales. So the incentives are not quite there for firms to work together with hospitals and policymakers for. Mm-hmm. And we're not saying that they don't want to or that they you know, shouldn't or anything like that. We're just saying that the incentives are not there. And as exactly. business it's just it's fairly easy to see that. Uh, so what we've been doing is uh, developing an idea called the antibiotic susceptibility bonus, where parts of an, uh, a large monetary incentive, such as a market entry reward, would be directed towards payments that would be given to the company over a longer period of time mm-hmm. if the uh, drug remains effective. And this, we believe, not only uh, make firms over the medium term uh, go for more robust molecules, it will yeah. also create a uh, incentive to, to limit, for example, the set of approved indications uh, and also limit early marketing. And the idea is then to basically overcompensate the companies for, for doing this. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. And I think this is something that's been missing in the, in the arsenal of incentives that have been, been discussing. So this is something we've been developing lately, still are working mm-hmm. on it, but which is a kind of a new approach where we combine incentives for, for R&D with incentives for stewardship. Absolutely. It sounds like a very, it covers a lot of bases, that idea. Um, So I wanted to tell you about that. Stay tuned for more on the uh, antibiotic susceptibility bonus. And then finally, for all your uh, listeners out there, if you haven't found John Rex's blog, AMR Solutions yet, have a look because it's a great read. Yeah, I got to say, that's honestly where we get a lot of our discussion topics from in our news things. We are huge followers of John Rex's blog ourselves here at the (laughs) podcast. So I totally second that recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jennifer. All right. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Welcome back. So Ava, what did you think about this interview? This interview was very enlightening to me for a couple of reasons, particularly a couple of topics. One was that I loved hearing a young researcher in this topic and a young researcher that is also so focused and putting so much effort in working multidisciplinarily, which is something that we talk all the time that is needed in this topic. (laughs) And it was inspiring to hear him talk about that and how he is perhaps suffering some of the consequences of working multidisciplinarily and um, 
it's a bit sad to realize that it is so hard to implement these new ways of thinking about science and working on science, and that maybe it doesn't really fit into the mold of how academic system works and has worked for a really long time. Yeah, and especially I'm almost a little bit disheartened just because he says like the interest is there. People think it's an interesting research. It just maybe doesn't fit, you know, what do we publish where and that kind of stuff, which, which sounds maybe really unimportant if you're not used to the academic field where you have to publish in certain, certain journals, certain field specific things. And it depends that that can decide if you get funding, if you get positions. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, uh, I get the feeling that uh, when it comes to this discussion, like science and the progress on people doing science and in academia is very square, it's very numerical and it's very yeah. categorical. And the value of the science and the work being produced is not really taken in account, right? I mean, it how, is to a degree, but like these things that don't fit neatly into, no matter how cool, how good quality it is, if it doesn't fit into a box and like one of these, you know, there might be a lot of them, but if it doesn't fit into one of these boxes, if it's in between some, then you kind of lose some of the benefits that you could have gotten from the quality of the research as yeah, it is. Yeah, this uh, conversation also kind of put me back into some discussions we had at UAC you know, for our PhD students that are doing multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary research, um, yeah. where do they publish their research? Yeah, now more and more journals are doing a special issue that maybe includes this, but one thing is publishing and another thing as we are seeing now is how do those publications count later yeah. on into your CV and building your career? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about the interview is mm -hmm. when brought up in the end this new project that he's working on on maybe come up with a susceptibility bonus mm -hmm. um, I think the concept is so cool and it's also like very fact-based and scientific-based right because what we, yeah. want, we want is to have antibiotics that work can we somehow reward those antibiotics that stay working longer in the market so there's yeah. more incentives for companies and for practitioners as well to preserve the usability of this. But also we were talking and you had a very nice uh, idea or explanation of why this could actually be really good when it comes to the companies bringing it into the market. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's kind of two sides to this. This would both incentivize stewardship, which is, I guess, the usage. I mean, the number one that the companies aren't trying to overpromote it and that the practitioners are using it properly. But it might also incentivize companies to really put I mean I'm not saying that these drug development companies don't put a lot of effort into making drugs but maybe the way we make decisions about which drugs we move forward with and this is a big discussion when you talk about uh, these big funding things and um, market entry rewards and that sort of thing are we really rewarding the best drug like if we're only doing it for a few things is it the best one that really gets to market well if you have some sort of thing tied to an antibiotic susceptibility bonus, then maybe there's a bigger push that it is the best drug, that it's as novel as it can be, that it's really well developed, that it's really well studied ahead of time, what the ability to develop resistance is in the target organisms, for example, and that sort of thing. And then making sure or sure that you are not bringing something that might give you cross resistance with something that is already yeah. there, or that it would be easier to develop resistance with the knowledge we have of previous antibiotic classes and so on. Yeah, and especially if this sort of uh, reward is or bonus is tied together with some sort of market entry reward system, then 
maybe the companies would take a little bit longer in the development process to really make a good drug instead of putting something out there that maybe could have been improved a little bit. And I say this with like no experience in drug development, of course, but I feel like a lot of the things, if, as an example, a lot of the drugs that come out now are already established classes of antibiotics that the resistance mechanisms that we find are often that resistance genes that already exist are just kind of changed or overexpressed so that it's it's not new resistance mechanisms. It's mm-hmm. the old stuff is adapting to the new stronger antibiotic and it goes pretty fast. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. It's mm-hmm. not that big of a thing to get around. But if we're really trying and focusing on making things that are hard to become resistant to, which I'm sure they already are, but adding more of a push in that direction as well, instead of just getting to market, getting something safe and good to give the market, then I think it could be really useful. Mm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of this research. I know that the team is pretty multidisciplinary with people here in Europe, people in other countries. And it would be really cool to see that this can get away into implementation and hopefully, yeah, we get maybe more robust uh, antibiotics out there in the market. And last but not least, I think maybe we can talk a little bit about or introduce our new section with a part that Olaf mentioned in his uh, interview, which is the work on looking into how diagnostics can come into hospitals and the innovation side in diagnostics. Yeah, and especially something that's well made for the current existing system in hospitals. (laughs) Right, like that's, uh, I can understand totally that very... Um, structure, uh, structure systems like a hospital and yeah. when also things need to be done in a quick but trustworthy very, manner. Very, very reliable. And, and, and very reliable that you are yeah. going to come in with something and there's a bit of resistance to try to put it into the workflow and there's a lot of mm-hmm. barriers to that. Uh, but given that is the situation, I guess the best thing is to try to come up with new diagnostic solutions that are as easy and as straightforward and as, uh, let's say, manual as possible, as you mentioned. Yeah, and easily implemented, like yeah. as little barrier as possible to implement. And easy, easily understandable. That's also yeah. a very important point. So I think we can actually directly move on to the new section this time instead of making a cut because yeah. it's really interesting this paper that we're going to talk about now so this article is also a bit of an in-house thing um two principal investigators of this article are both the usc director and one of our pis johan kruger and uh, the authors of this paper are dear friends to us as well so we're really happy i've had a benefit of this this specific setup before already so i'm very biased that this is a nice thing (laughs) Let's just introduce the article, yeah. just to build up the hype more, and let's talk about <laughs> this new diagnostic test. So can you introduce the article for us, please, Jenny? Yeah, so the article is called Combient Antibiotic Interaction Testing Made Easy. It was published in Plus Biology on September 17th, 2020. So this article really shows a, a new method of not, I mean, diagnostic, yes, but it's also looking at how antibiotics interact, and mainly because a lot of antibiotics are given and a lot of times in the clinic, you give multiple antibiotics at the same time for, for several different reasons. I mean, you're either trying to get a stronger effect, something faster maybe, so you're using antibiotics at different functions and maybe a broader, broader spectrum or things that work in different ways and maybe can help each other. And you can also be trying to counteract resistance development. So basically mm-hmm. the idea is you'd have to, the bacteria would have to become resistant in multiple ways at the same time that's less likely to happen. When antibiotics are working together in treatment, 
they, they can either just kind of work independently from each other and not really interact, which is called an additive effect, or they can interact with each other in a way that actually decreases the effect of the antibiotics, which is called an antagonistic effect, or they can work together and interact in a way that actually increases the effect of the antibiotics, so the, the killing effect, basically, the mm -hmm. growth inhibiting effect. And that's called synergistic mm -hmm. effects. So what they're trying to do in this case is be able to identify, is there any interaction between the antibiotics planting at the same time, kind of looking at them at the same time and predict a little bit how this would work in treatment. What are good combinations? What are bad combinations? Wanting to point out why this new test is so uh, interesting is because, well, apart from being an easy test to do, is because there is a more need to test this combination and this possible synergy in a case-to-case -case basis, because it's not been yeah. seen before that you can have two antibiotics together and you might test for synergy and get synergy in a specific bacteria species or in a specific strain of a bacteria species. But you might move on to a different bacteria, use those same two antibiotics, but you might have a different result. So just yeah. because you know that antibiotic A and antibiotic B do together really well in bacteria X, that doesn't mean that that result translates into bacteria Y, for example. Yeah. So you want to have a, a way to be able to do this kind of test in the clinics quickly and be able to provide with the right combination in the right moment. Yeah. So, of course, combination testing already exists, but it's tedious. It's something that is done in a hard way. You have to do this checkerboard, microbrat dilution, and yeah. it's not really straightforward. With this test, you basically can do it with a normal agar plate, like you use always, like, like it has been done for diagnostic testing a really long time with the antibiotic disc. But now you can test three combinations at the same time in one plate. So mm -hmm. you have three antibiotics and you do pairwise combinations. So you have three. And you can also, as I understood, do the result analysis automatically by imaging, which is even yeah. faster. You basically put the plate somewhere, it reads. It's not complicated imaging software either. It's literally like the, you can use your camera phone to take a picture of it. And the actual analysis, it makes theoretical sense to me. I just don't understand how to set it up myself. And that's the kind of thing that I feel like really helps in implementing something in a hospital is like, I can't write the code. I can't make it do it, but I can understand the concept of why this works. number mm -hmm. works, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very automated. It's very, it goes very fast. Yeah, I'm, I knew about the concept of this idea. And then when I saw the paper was out, I'm like, Oh my God, I want to see uh, how does it actually work. And uh, the paper, the article is very well written. Of course, it's scientific jargon in it, but it's very comprehensive if you yeah. are interested in knowing more about this particular thing. Or if you are uh, someone that works on diagnostics, the designs of these inserts to do this test are actually available. Contact the author. So if you are listening to this and you're interested in this new uh, research and you have read the paper, you can always mm -hmm. write to the authors and then get more insight in how do you maybe implement this into your particular research. Yeah, we could we can actually mention a little bit about just try to describe these inserts. I mean, there's good better pictures in the paper. Look it up in the paper if you really, yeah, really want details. Visual. But it is um, basically circular inserts that have a triangle cut out in the middle. So there's three little sections where you add agar that has been combined with antibiotics. For each section, you have one antibiotic agar. Mm -hmm. And then this little disc, which by the way is 3D printed, so it's very easy. They embed this little insert into a regular agar plate and you can actually put two in a bigger agar plate if you want to run more at a time. So it's very, it, you can scale it up. And like I said, for each strain, I mean, it goes very fast. It's very easy to test. 
So what is happening is that triangle in the middle of the insert is getting antibiotic being diffused for, from these three sections. And the antibiotics will diffuse freely on the agar and there will be some zones where two antibiotics will be diffusing in the same area. And that's the interaction mm -hmm. area of the antibiotic. And basically when, what the test is reading is how well or bad bacteria are growing in that interaction area. And all yeah. that then is measured, is quantified, and you get a very reliable result on interaction if it's synergistic, antagonistic, or if it's just additive, it means they don't do anything to each other. So yeah. it's definitely a very cool read and a very cool concept mm -hmm. to understand. And, and tying a little bit into what we talked about before, sorry. Uh, I mean, they, they kind of designed it to work in an existing clinical lab. The inserts, they're not active until you add the last agar that you embedded in, which is easy to do, goes very fast. And that's like right before you actually do the experiment. Scaling up is easy. You can just have these inserts in the fridge prepared and ready to go for whatever you need to do. Like they say, it's designed to work in a clinical lab. They put a lot of focus on this, fits well in how clinical labs work. And the inserts are also autoclavable and reusable. So it's something that can yeah. be actually... Um, you can just pick them out for... of the plate and reuse them. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's very convenient. It's definitely super cool. And I love to see this innovation. And I love to see how the brain is kind of pushed to the limits. Where are we now? What do we need? And how can we use the knowledge we have to build something useful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, the link is on the show notes. Then we can move on to the second article, which uh, deals with plasmids, which we have talked about before here in the podcast a little bit. Yeah, and both Ava and I have personal experience working with plasmids. So <laughs> the good and the bad. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, being pulled back on my first years of PhD when I was reading this uh, article because I was actually studying exactly that. What is the plasmid cause in the host and what are the key players into that stability. Yeah. And I, I've been working with plasmids a little bit on and off in my work and I finally got back into it now and I'm very excited. So that's why I was excited to see this article. So this article was published in Current Biology Journal and it's actually dated to be printed on October the 5th. So the same day as we are airing this episode, but it's of course already available online for us to talk about it. And the title is Antibiotics Interfere with Evolution of Plasmid Stability. Why is it interesting to understand how the use of antibiotics might play a role into plasmid stability? It's based on the fact that a lot of the resistant genes that we can find in different bacteria strains out there are actually coded into plasmids. Having a more grasp into how plasmids evolve being stable or unstable in populations having antibiotic being present in the media or not can give us an idea of how these plasmids might actually fix in populations. So when we're talking about a plasmid being unstable, it means that it will get lost over time. So as bacteria cells divide, not all the daughter cells are going to get plasmids and perhaps at the end of some generations, there's going to be no plasmid left in the population versus an unstable plasmid, which is a plasmid that no matter how many generations pass, you will still find the plasmids in all the bacteria uh, that you have in your population. So this paper basically is looking into, okay, if we have a stable and unstable plasmids and we put these bacteria under antibiotic treatment or not antibiotic treatment, do we see any difference in how these plasmids evolve to still be present or they get lost and all those kind of play there? What are the main results that they found, Jenny? So they found some pretty interesting things, I thought. For the one thing, what they find is that 
if they grow it with antibiotic, they evolve it with the in the presence of antibiotics and then remove the antibiotics, then the plasmid is very quickly lost if it's unstable. While if it's a stable plasmid, it's maintained, which it always is basically. But if, if they evolve the same unstable plasmid without the presence of antibiotics, there are some that are lost, yes, but the ones that are left are evolving to become more stable in that mm -hmm. host. So mm -hmm. what they find basically is that when they then add antibiotics, the plasmid becomes very uh, fixed because the cells can only survive with the antibiotics there. They would die if the plasmid wasn't in the cell. So you're killing off the cells that don't have the plasmid. But when they remove the antibiotics again, and you go, like the plasmid could theoretically be lost again, it's not being lost at the same rate. So basically, if there's no antibiotic present, the unstable plasmid is becoming more stable. Mm -hmm. it, it, it feels a little bit counterintuitive in there. I mean, it's not weird really, but it, it feels a little counterintuitive because we tend to think about antibiotics selecting for plasmids because they carry antibiotic resistance genes. Yeah, because I think what this, so this is the view that we have always had, right? That using the antibiotics is actually selecting for the plasmid. So it's being directly uh, affecting the evolution of the plasmid. When in reality, when we are using antibiotics with a cell that has an antibiotic resistant plasmid, what we are doing is actually affecting the evolution of the cell itself and not the plasmid. So this article, what they're actually proposing in the end is that maybe we need to think that the evolution of the plasmid and the evolution of the host, which would be the bacterial cell, are two separate things. Of course, they're gonna be intrinsically linked because the evolution of the plasmid happens within yeah. the cell, but maybe the factors that will apply to the evolutionary result of both the cell and the plasmid might be different. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the thing. Like before we think, oh, we use antibiotics, we are selecting for the plasmid, but the plasmid really doesn't care about the antibiotic. It's the cell that cares about antibiotics, right? Yeah, exactly. You're basically like, by adding the antibiotics to the system, you're keeping the cells alive that have the plasmid, whether or not they are optimal Stable, unstable. in that way. Yeah, exactly. Stable or unstable. So you're basically disrupting the evolutionary process of that plasmid. Mm -hmm. because you're keeping the cell alive that the plasma yes. is in mm -hmm. and it, for me it was a bit counterintuitive to think about it that way but i think it's a really i think it's very smart how they bring that up that it's mm -hmm. these two are different things they tie together yes they interact but what's good for the i mean to simplify it what's good for the plasma isn't necessarily good for the host exactly and in particular, even if you put more onto the equation that some plasmids are costly by themselves right like mm -hmm. if they are in the cell and they are there's no selection for them for because they have actually antibiotic resistant genes or not the yeah. plasmid itself can be costly so the cell doesn't really want the plasmid to be there but the plasmid evolution is always going to be pushing towards a stability or a way to not get lost in the populations yeah so i i really 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 love uh, plasmid and host interaction because it's like such a beautiful way to understand evolution and to yeah uh, Oh, I, I love it. It's really nice. I actually really, I mean, I feel like they kind of ended up in a different place in this article because they also start talking about, they look at, com, they look at plasmids in just, they look at sequencing data. So they basically go into a database and take all the sequences and say, okay, what's plasmids and where, where are their antibiotic resistance genes? Which ones appear to be movable because plasmids can move from cell to cell, right? But not all plasmids. So some of them don't have the ability to move. Uh, so they're basically looking at these plasmids and comparing like okay if there's a lot of resistance genes do they tend to be mobile do they tend to be large mm -hmm. and what they find is that these plasmids that have multiple resistance genes they, they correlate to bigger plasmids which could have to do with that 
for the antibiotic resistance genes to not be disrupting the plasmid machinery itself, which is mm -hmm. part of the problem with this unstable plasmid is that the, the resistance gene, yeah, yeah it, it's disrupting the plasmid itself. Um, then you need this bigger plasmid that has more space on it and that can be costly in a different way and all sorts of things. It's a very... A lot of factors playing into the end result of how a plasmid yeah. comes in a population. So what I see it is like, yeah, you have antibiotic resistant genes, but having them per se maybe makes the plasmid more unstable. But when there is no antibiotic selection in the environment, you are selecting for those plasmids variants that are more stable. And then when the antibiotic yeah. comes into play again, then you have a population that has a stable plasmid, but that also has antibiotic resistant gene. So mm -hmm. this intermittent presence, absence of antibiotics seems to be playing a big role into the fixation of these antibiotic resistant plasmids in the population. Yeah, yeah. I think if there is one take home message from this article that it can be like simply summarized is once you want to understand the, the evolution of antibiotic resistance based on plasmids, you have to have in account that plasmids and bacterial cells might have different evolutionarily purposes, let's say, yeah, or yeah. they will work differently evolutionarily. So you cannot just say, oh, this antibiotic is, go is good for this bacteria to survive because the plasmid might want to go somewhere else, you know? But yeah, so that's two, two papers that are probably a little bit science, natural science heavy, but very interesting for us and very fun to think about. And especially fun to have something else that's not uh, COVID-19 related or politics right now. <laughs> although, although our Twitter feeds are full of politics and COVID. So. Yeah. It's harder to find interesting mm. articles right now. I'm sure there's no, there's no shortage of them. It's just harder of course to. Not. I mean, we can always uh, give a shout out. If you are working on antibiotic resistance, you have a paper soon coming out. You are most than welcome to contact us and tell us. Hey, yeah, absolutely. I just published this. Uh, would you like to feature it in the? We are always looking for the most recent and interesting research being done in the topic of antibiotic resistance. And you know that we are not limited by any of the disciplines. So anything yeah. good coming our way is going to be very Throw it at us, please. With that, we are done for this month's episode. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed. Again, of course, if you hear that there is some tapping sounds, some muffling, some volume reduction, you know, we are still doing this uh, remotely uh, with the mm -hmm. computers. We are very, very thankful to technology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully... It will change, but we think that for the rest of the year, probably it's going to continue being the case. So bear with us. Thank you so much for listening and happy back soon. See you next month. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.